Hey, Bike Portland podcast listeners, your host, Jonathan Maas here. I just wanted you to know that what you're about to listen to isn't a new episode. You might not realize, but we actually launched our podcast in 2013 when I co-hosted it with the wonderful Michael Anderson and Lillian Karabayek. We published about 20 episodes between 2013 and 2016, and so what we're doing now is just re-uploading them all to our current host. So sorry for any confusion, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the July 2013 episode of the Portland Folk Commuting Podcast, a Bike Portland production about buses, bikes, and low-car life in PDX. I'm Lillian Kerbake. I'm Jonathan Moss. And I'm Michael Anderson. Each month, the three of us bring you three practical bits of news that matter to Portlanders who get around without a car. And we give it to you in the time it takes the average Portlander to get to work. Today we're talking about the death of a bridge, new life at the Transportation Bureau, and the end of a pervasive bicycle myth. And after that, I'll share a commuting tip of the month. Lily will share some of her favorite things people said on TriMet, and Michael will read something funny from the bus. No one can explain how I came to be chosen. Lillian, what's going on here? We've got Jonathan back. It's pretty exciting. How did this happen? Well, Portland Afoot and Bike Portland have merged forces. Nobody media. told me about this. I'm I don't pretty know what's sure going you on. knew about this, Michael. I, all right. <laughs> you signed the papers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I didn't even know there were papers. The Yes, it's true. We are joining up with Bike Portland, and this is this podcast is now a Bike Portland production. We're super psyched about doing that and of uh, sort of melding this together. We're still going to call it, at least for now, the Portland Foot Podcast. Because you're still getting around on your feet on a That's true. It's the fundamental way to move about the city is on your feet. And we are, uh, we'll be continuing to cover all modes and sort of round up our, the most interesting stories uh, for commuters with uh, low-car lives. All right, well, it looks like our first topic is talking about the big news of the week in the transportation world. It was the big news of the weekend. I woke up and Jonathan had broken this story. I was like, what the hell? And he was reporting on another breaking of the story, I guess. But it was the first news that I saw because the Oregonian didn't play it very large for some reason. It took a little bit of time to get around to covering the demise of the freeway project that they'd spent 38 editorials promoting. (laughs) We're talking about the Columbia River Crossing so, so what, I mean, what's going on with this? So the Columbia River Crossing was that big bridge, right, to go to Vancouver that they were planning on. Yeah. And it's been in, how long has it been in production Like 15 now? years or so. That's about right. Yeah, so the, uh, the process has been long and uh, it, was, it sometimes has been described by people who wanted the bridge to be built as like, it's so long that we have to build it. And then the people who didn't want the bridge to be built were like, but there's a reason it's been so long is because it's a stupid idea and it, you can't get people to agree on a stupid idea. And it turns out that you can't because the Washington Senate, which is mostly, which is the most conservative of the four legislative bodies that had to agree, jumped off. Uh, Republicans did not support the plan to extend light rail to Vancouver. And as a result of that, the whole compromise that was forged in 2008 fell apart and the governors have declared that they're shutting down the project and calling it quits. So wasn't a lot of the opposition to this that we heard was from like Oregonians that were concerned about the project for environmental reasons, right? So, but that's not who ended up killing it? 
No, I mean, it's funny. Some of the Oregon activists that were working against it called it, uh, called the, the folks up in Washington, uh, it was it was a meeting of the minds. They called it the Green Tea Party that ended up killing it. So uh, it, it was actually really opposed in, in Oregon by a lot of, like, by economists for financial reasons. I mean, there were a lot of reasons. I think now a lot of the media is characterizing it as the environmentalists who didn't want a, a new a new freeway or something right. like that. I, I think that's, that's a mischaracterization. It had a lot of holes, a lot of controversy. Even the federal government wasn't too excited about it. They sort of, tepidly put their toe in the pool of the you know they sort of like carefully put their toe in the in the, in the tub there and, and barely said they would support it just enough to say that it's a priority but they never really wanted to that's why you never saw people like Earl Blumenau or Peter DeFazio or any of our big uh, people in Congress coming up to bat for it so uh, those people are environmentalists you're saying that it's not it's not it wasn't environmentalists didn't want a freeway because there are other reasons to not like freeways besides just environmentalism uh, absolutely. A lot of people were concerned that it would just suck all the money out of the entire transportation funding system so that we couldn't do anything else. Right. But if you but if you look at one of the biggest kind of champions of the project and the person that's most often kind of going and arguing for it, it's it's Rex Burkholder, former Metro Councilor, who's a who's who's a big environmentalist as well as being very into new urbanism. But he was fighting for this till the end. I mean he was just on OPB after the death of the bridge talking about why this is a failure of us. Um, so what's, I mean, what's the deal with that? Why do we see, why do we see people that are environmentalists supporting this project? Well, I think, uh, Rex Burkholder took the position of sort of being the pragmatic environmentalist, sort of, he, I think he thought he was ahead of the rest of the sort of liberal uh, thinking on this and thinking that, well, I'm going to make this huge grand compromise and go ahead and support this huge project and because it has light rail, because it improves the bicycle access across the bridge and, that's sort of that, that deal with the devil thing that I never bought and a lot of people never bought. Rex Burkholder, I think, is really tormented about his t decision to, to support this project, and now he's looking back at it, trying to justify it. So you think a little bit of it has to do with just Rex Burkholder's personal feeling of sunk cost, is that he put enough time and energy into this that he really needs to feel like... Well, to some degree. I don't want to overstate Rex's sort of importance in, this, in, in, yeah. this, in the issue, too, because, I mean, he, he was actually taken off being a spokesman of it by Metro early on. Right. Uh, it, you know, but it, it had a huge impact on his personal life in a lot of ways. I mean, he lost his bid for Metro president because of his, his support of this. Uh, so I think you have to understand that context in listening to how he goes back and looks at it now. Right. Uh, but it was a really controversial stance for him to take, but it was a crucial one because it happened early in the, in the project's lifespan of where there was this opportunity for Portland to weigh in. Right. Which I was thinking, man, Portland's going to save the day. There's no way the city, city council of Portland and Metro is going to be behind this thing. But because of Rex Burkholder's being, being sort of on the left, being an environmentalist, because of his support, he made it really difficult to garner the kind of opposition that would really tank this thing. He didn't create any political breathing room for any of the other liberals in Portland, so mm. it ended up getting passed. Right. by Portland City Council, passed by Metro, and at that point it was like, you know, there you go. Right. So, I mean, so why why should we care that this project is dead? Like, as a commuter, how how is how am I affected by this project being dead? Well, it depends on how often you try to get get over the river. I mean, if, if you're looking for, you know, spending money in different ways, investing in infrastructure that you can use that gives you a lot more different choices around the region. I mean, this was a a lot of money, $3.4 billion to go into, you know, fixing what they called, you know, the only stop sign on I-5 and all these other sky is falling uh, sayings. But, you know, I just think it was uh, it, it was a lot of money for a preordained solution that favored sort of a, 
an old school mindset. I mean, take out light rail and, and a bike path on the side, and it's really just a classic 1960s highway project. And it, it was ultimately light rail that, that probably killed this, right? It was this kind of fiscal conservative opposition to light rail. Well, actually, I would say that I think that the tolls were a bigger deal in Clark County in driving their opposition. Mm-hmm. I think that Clark County would put up with light rail despite like some ideological wingnuts who don't like it if they could still drive for free across this very expensive new bridge but truth is it's a very expensive new bridge and it just doesn't make sense to build that without tolls i mean okay this is dead crc is supposedly dead we've we've heard predictions of it dying on a you know semi-annual basis for a while now what happens now that it really truly seems dead I think there is an opportunity for people that have other solutions, people that uh, were looking for other ways to tackle this issue of you know, getting people across the river who they've really been marginalized to some to a lot, large extent throughout this process. They were sort of dismissed as you know, left-wing wackos or some other thing about, you know, well, that we can't talk about that solution because we've already decided on our, on our recommendation. Right. Now, all of a sudden, they're being, you know, at least given an opportunity, I think, to, to talk about some other solutions. But overall, I think everybody's going to take a deep breath, and I think all the big players involved are going to have to really do a gut check and think about, you know, how we make how we make our investments. You know, is this the end? Like I've kind of been saying for a while, this is the. I just don't think America is going to do these kind of mega projects anymore. Right. The federal funding situation is re- a lot different. You know, gas taxing gas tax doesn't go as far. Driving's declining. I mean, so this is could be kind of a you know the first the first big real tangible indicator that things are fundamentally shifted in America around transportation. So smaller projects for this, right? It could be another smaller bridge that just goes to Hayden Island so people don't have to hop on I-5 every time they just want to go from Hayden Island to Portland. It could be, it. there needs to be seismic up, upgrades on the bridge, right? It's a 100-year-old bridge. Those, Some people think the seismic concerns are over, over overstated. It is definitely going to fall down in if a serious it, earthquake. In an earthquake. So would the 205 bridge, so would most bridges in the area... It's going to be a huge problem when we have our earthquake. When we have our big earthquake, yeah, yes. which is coming. I think we can we can go a long way in just doing more transportation demand management stuff now, and looking at how many people are going across a river and why, and what are ways to encourage different behaviors, and you know, look at land use, look at development of Vancouver in terms of a job center, and you know, there's a lot of other ways to to look at this problem other than. billion freeway. And uh, some people have been talking about tolling, but I'm under the impression that tolling at the moment, we couldn't just slap a toll on it. It would be illegal, right? We'd have to do some sort of improvement on the bridge in order to change the tolling, or we'd have to pass something at the federal level in order to toll the bridge. I would say now, I mean, it's such a new, it's kind of a new day. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if if that indeed was the current, current policy. People could actually look to, to make it different. I mean, you've got to do something. You know, and it's going to take sort of a, a new look. We do have a new transportation secretary, uh, and you know, I think this is this the death of this project uh, makes a lot of noise and rings pretty far and wide across the country in terms of why. And so, I think when you have that kind of situation, there's a chance to approach things in a different way. Yeah, I would just add that I think this is an extension of Portland's historic resistance to highways that has given us the city that we have that the portland is really an outlier in having so few miles of highway per person in the area and this is going to make it so that that continues so if you like the way the portland has developed then this is going to give us more of what we've had so i'm looking forward to being the crc being added to sean granton's dead freeways that's right bike tour yes nice that's right yeah sweet so so what's next i think we should talk about this study with compliance figures for bicyclists at stoplights. 
So as far as I can find out from all the Oregonian comments that have ever existed, and every person on the internet, a bicyclist yes. has never stopped at a stop sign in yeah. the history of Portland. Yeah, I'm surprised they even had to study it. I mean, it's obvious, right? Everybody That's right. Knows nobody stops at stop signs. But really, what ended up uh, what ended up happening in the study, Michael? So the study was conducted at stoplights in Beaverton, Portland, Corvallis and Eugene by a uh, Portland State University professor who put intersection stoplights or intersection cameras there and observed 2,000 people's behavior. And he found that 89% of people on bikes who came to the light waited for a green light. Another 6% started moving, ran the red, if you'd call it that, but it was just before it turned to green. So they're watching the cross signal. Presumably they feel they're safe and can start building momentum. And in, in, a, in Ohio, that's a separate citation. Oh, really? It's a proceeding before green is separate than running a red Just light. Just for bikes? Uh, no, no, for everyone. Okay. Well, so, but yeah. other people don't do that, though, do they? Cars definitely do that, do for sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, the it was 94% of people on bikes stop at red lights was the finding of this study. And it was surprising in some sense because... The other figures in the literature, though they weren't as solid, sort of methodologically, suggested that they were, that was a, that was a really high rate, that most of the earlier indications had been that people are not that law-abiding when they're on bikes. So do you think, given what you know about the intersections that they looked at, do you think these are results that we can take and sort of extrapolate in a, in a bigger sense, or is this, you know, do these, do these stats really stand up? To, to sort of scrutiny in terms of applying them in, in a larger area? There were a variety of different intersections. The By far the most popular intersections in the study, the ones that had the heaviest weight in the study, were the central Portland ones, like the it was, they had one on Broadway. And one on like Hawthorne and yeah. 12th and Southeast. They had one on Rosa Parks. Uh, the So, you know, there were a variety of them. And then there were like six of them at the one in Corvallis. But there were a variety of different intersections. There were a variety of different signalizations. They didn't find any clear trend difference in the signalization and it was a very large sample size what so what about the difference between did they look at the difference between weight activated lights that use uh i don't that know. use induction signals versus timed lights okay be curious about that basically the conclusion of the the scholar that i talked to was that it, the solution to the problem of red lights is not engineering it's cultural and behavioral that they were looking for ex explanations for things that engineers could do to increase red light compliance obviously everybody likes that concluded that it was just a basically a decision on the part of the person as they were hitting the bike light so did the presence of other people waiting have a big impact on compliance rate it turns out that they did not run the numbers on that but that is the theory of peter Kuntz, the stoplight expert here in portland that part of the reason that portland's numbers are so much better than other numbers like they've seen rates of as low as 31 percent in chicago before they improved dearborn avenue here we're talking about like 80 to 90 percent suggestion is that if there are more people waiting at the light together and you're all sitting there and then one dude comes past like he's gonna have to think twice about pedaling past everybody right. running the light so the solution is to pay volunteers <laughs> to just to ride bikes ride around, bikes around <laughs> and stop right. Cheaper than police enforcement, cheaper than expensive signals, right? Good. Yes, exactly. I the, think that's a great idea. I mean, I think this also kind of ties into this whole idea of 
safety being linked to more people being on bikes, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that that helmet laws are less effective than improving infrastructure so more people are riding. Right. If you've got more people riding, then more people are supposedly... Yeah, so I don't know. I, I think that's kind of an interesting, like, building upon this theory that the more cyclists we have on the road, ever, the, the safer it gets. And part of that is maybe traffic light compliance. I was on the... Um, there was a traffic signal ride for Pedalpalooza, which 50 people showed up to look at traffic signals after work on that's a weekday. Amazing. And it was phenomenal. It was a great ride. At at the at the beginning of the ride, you know, often on pedal pluser rides, people will be like, okay, so we might cork some intersections in order to get the group through. And Peter Kuntz was like, if you don't obey the traffic signals on the traffic signal ride, you have failed. <laughs> so what do you guys do at red lights? Well, I have to admit, coming coming just back from a trip in Copenhagen where the entire network for bicycling is not only connected and dedicated and separated, every single intersection you come to has its own signalization for the bicycle movement. Coming back from there just now, they also have pre-greens, so you get sort of a, a, a green, or it's, I guess it's a yellow. It's a yellow actually before the green to help you get on your pedal and start going. So I have to admit, since I've been back, my, my, my compliance with, with the signals here has gone down. <laughs> what is, what's your standard? Well, it's typical from what I've been doing since I've gotten back, really, is just going through before, before it actually turns green as the other light turns yellow, mm -hmm. you know? So I, I go through a little early just to get a jump on traffic, which is, it's going to, it's the future anyways. It's what our signals are going to do eventually anyway, and I kind of mm. like living okay. in the future. Jonathan um, so. likes to believe he's an early right. adopter, right. Yeah, disobeying right. traffic laws. It makes a lot That's of sense because you can clear yourself before the mm -hmm. cars start breathing down your neck, and it just, you know, it just makes sense. Right. And you're doing it, it's a matter of a second or two, and I'm doing it almost between when the yellow for the other direction, when it turns from yellow to red, it's not right. even like their yellow light is still on. It's like it's actually in the process of turning red, mm. and then I go... You know, so. so Ohio has a three-second delay in between the red for the opposite and the green yes. for yours. And I used that space all the time when I lived in Ohio. But in, in general, I am definitely a red light stopper. I, I often commute quite late at night, you know, 1 or 2 a.m. coming back from the lab when I was at Reed, and I had, a, had an hour-long commute. And uh, I was generally pretty traffic compliant, but the, the worst light is that uh, 20, 20th and Hawthorne, like crazy crazy intersection i would end up just being like mm -hmm. i have yeah. been waiting at this light for four minutes and yeah. there is no cross traffic whatsoever you gotta go on those yeah That's and that right. one that one really drove me nuts so yeah i will uh, i will only cross on the red after 1 a.m yeah basically mm -hmm. but Although i i but i always do start rolling early that's true just like on it well and they're, they have the, they have those pre-greens in germany as well um and they're just phenomenal. It took me a while to get used to them when I was living there, but by the time I left, I was like, why is the whole world not this way all the time? But I did, occasionally I would see, when I first got there, I'd see the yellow turning before I got to the intersection. I'd start slowing down because I thought that the red light was coming, and then I'd realize that, in fact, uh, yes. it was the green light. <laughs> uh, great. Well, let's move to some people who don't need to be subtle because they're in charge. Absolutely. The new transportation leadership of the city of Portland I'm currently imagining this new duo, which is Leah Treat, who's coming from uh, Chicago's That's right. Department of Transportation. The new oh, bike mecca. Yes. Uh, well, let's well, be careful. According with to her, maybe. <laughs> uh, so Leah Treat, coming from Chicago, is now going to be Peabot's new head. Mm -hmm. She's uh, replacing our current interim director. 
And, uh, and then Charlie Hales, our mayor, has done all sorts of shakeups with commissioner appointments for what bureaus they're on. And uh, the least shakeup of them, I think, is that uh, Steve Novick got hmm. PBOT. I think that was actually one of the less surprising um, appointments. And Steve Novick is just an all-around... He's just a really, really great guy, I think, that gets really gets... Um, active transportation as well as street maintenance. Anyway, he's our new transportation commissioner. He's running the transportation department uh, politically. Yeah, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a major, major change for Portland. We have two new faces leading the Transportation Bureau that, you know, neither of them really have sort of on-the-ground experience with transportation, yet they're both really qualified, I think, for the job, given what I know. Uh, in the sense that Leah Treat's not coming. She's coming from the Department of Transportation in Chicago, but it was definitely more of the sort of financial, she was a deputy chief, sort of chief of staff kind of role. So she wasn't uh, sort of a transportation practitioner, if you will, and I guess same with Novick. So this this completes the end, really an end of an era where you know we had Sam Adams for so long, first as commissioner and then mayor in charge of transportation. And then we had Sam Adams chief of staff, Tom Miller, leading the Transportation Bureau. It was quite a long time, I think, in, it, it's, it actually encompasses all the time I've been in, in the city looking at this stuff in the past eight years. So I'm, this is a really exciting moment for transportation in Portland to have these two fresh faces in charge. What's, the, um, what, what, what's your expectation about how that's going to change? Could you describe, like, what, what's the difference in the perspective that they're going to bring, Jonathan? Well, I think one of the big things for me is that I think we, we immediately get beyond a lot of the, the political sort of social controversy baggage that, that bicycling has suffered from for, for many years now. A lot of that was tied to having a very politically oriented operator in Sam Adams. I mean, this is a mayor who survived two recall attempts, and he was very visible around bicycling. He was really, he was really uh, you know, identified with, I mean, a lot of people in the city identified him as sort of this bicycling mayor. Right. And he, he just hanging out with the bicycle lobby in the basement, you know, making all these plans and, and hatching the bicycle, you know, totalitarianism <laughs> on the rest of the city. I mean, that's, right. Yeah, that's well, that, that's, that is what he did. <laughs> yeah, we, we <laughs> wish. Yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't true, but that, that, that was a perception. So that, that was a hard perception because it made it so that, you know, everything bicycling became instantly controversial to some degree. And certainly pointing his chief of staff uh, to the head of the, of the bureau didn't actually help that. And, of course, you know, Charlie Hales came in and said, hey, that's a, that sort of cronyism. We're not going to go for that. So, you know, to Mayor Hill's credit, launched a national search and, and ended up coming on coming up with Leah Treat. So uh, it, it makes a big difference. It, it sort of it, it, it creates opportunity for a new narrative around bicycling and transportation in Portland. Uh, one that sort of, and this is, I think, to Novick's credit, he's a guy who, he's super smart, like Lily said. He goes for the facts and he goes for the best ideas and he himself uh, has pretty good grasp of the facts and he has good ideas. And if you ask someone like me, I, I think bicycling is the best idea in almost every situation for transportation. Uh, so that leaves me very, uh, you know, positively thinking about the, the solutions he's going to come up with and promote. I mean, to Novick's credit, just from a bike fund perspective in Portland, his second week as Peabot Commissioner, he showed up at Breakfast on the Bridges, um, and uh, which is where we serve coffee and donuts to commuters on the bridge. And he not only showed up, he also brought his, you know, brought healthy snacks uh, for really? us. Yeah, he brought, oh, a, he brought bananas and clementines and um, his staff brought donuts. Uh, so, I mean, the, the fact that Novick was his second week as commissioner wanting to reach out and 
meet people who commute to work downtown, uh, you know, through, like, Shift, which is kind of the one of the roguest bicycle enterprises in Portland. Uh, an institution, but a rogue one at that. I, I think really, it really speaks to the fact that, you know, he's he wants to talk about multimodalism. Yeah. So. Yeah, while he's, while he's had a really low profile on the bike issue, it's worth noting, although nobody knows this because there was not a peep about it from the city, that he recently returned from a study tour of Copenhagen, <laughs> a, a bicycle study tour, yeah. uh, you know, paid for by Bikes Belong, a national nonprofit group, the same tour I just got done doing, or a similar one. So, you know, he gets, he gets a lot of stuff. He's seen how it's supposed to work. He cares a lot about public health. That's one of his big issues, is how promoting bicycling can help the city save money you know, from, from a health perspective. So I think that's going to be something we're going to see him moving forward on. Uh, and, you know, as far as Leah Treat uh, and how they, them, they interact together, it's, it, it is really a wild card. I mean, I'm sort of positive, but it's, a, it's anybody's guess to this point how that happens. I mean, she starts on July 22nd. And like I said, she doesn't have a huge track record of sort of implementing transportation policies in terms of she hasn't led a, a bureau before and stuff like that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that, how that comes across. And I just hope that you know they're able to operate and to do some cool stuff without a ton of controversy. Right. I, I read every tweet that Leah had ever tweeted for another of my gigs and uh, the, about bicycling. And I have never been so sure that a public official's heart is in the right place on a policy that matters to me after doing so yeah didn't you didn't you do like you found out like the number of tweets per bicycle by month because yes, this is the kind right. of thing that michael yes. does with his time with my time yes that's right and i am paid to do this even more amazingly <laughs> the uh yeah so she her it's clear from her twitter feed that her interest in bikes has grown very rapidly over the years because she's realized that they're a a safe, effective, and financially cheap way to do things. I love that. I love that. Like the first picture people were able to dig up of her when the news broke that she had been uh, hired for this job was of her with a bike share bike. And I was like, "All right, this is good. This is good news." Like the picture that people were just pulling from the internet. Right. It was yes. her Rent, most yes. recent Twitter picture. It was exactly. with her with the bike share bike. So. Yeah, as long as we're mentioning uh, new faces, it's worth mentioning at Peabot, not only is the director of the agency new and the commissioner that is in charge of the agency is new, the, the both of the spokespeople are also new. So the, the two what they call public information officers, the people that are crafting the news releases and helping set the tone and the narrative and giving information to journalists about transportation projects, they're both brand new. So it's a pretty amazing sort of fresh start in that bureau. So I'm going to be watching it really closely. Great. So maybe we can overcome the unbearable complacency of portland that we talked about last maybe we episode. can let's hope on a scale of one to ten how much likelihood is there that we will overcome that unbearable complacency of portland when it comes to transportation with this new team lillian i i am currently uh plastering the faces of novik and leatree on <laughs> batman and robin in my head only they are surrounded by sunday parkways okay okay that's my fan art okay great we'll let the readers listeners <laughs> determine what the number is jonathan well i'll just add i mean it's a new batman and robin but it's a big city uh, and it's got a legacy of, of thought and sort of civic positioning around transportation and bicycling so uh it's going to take a lot of work for them to change that dynamic and to sort of you know change direction of the ship if you will 
you guys aren't willing to play my game, the correct answer is seven. I was going to say move seven. Along. That's a safe, that's okay. a safe number. Okay, that is a safe number. But it's a good number. It's, it's a good number. It's the most magical number in Harry Potter, so... Is it? Going back to mine. All right, great. Now we know. Great. I just spent the whole weekend at a Harry Potter conference. So. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, Jonathan, do you have a tip of the month for us? Yes, I do. Let's let's talk about staying cool while you ride, since it's oh. so freaking hot outside. Good idea. Uh, one thing I like to do, I think works really well, is if you're having trouble staying cool on your on your ride around town, is get a handkerchief or a towel, soak it in some cold water, and then tie it around your neck. You want, you want to wring it out first so you're not dripping, but you can tie that cool uh, moist rag or hanky around your neck and just let it let it sit there and it'll cool you off and it also has the added benefit of sun protection i also recommend wet socks Ooh. wet socks deliberately wetting your socks and deliberately then putting them in wetting your, your socks yeah wow. it's like just pretend like the thing that you do in january accidentally is actually <laughs> what you want to do in july that's great all right sweet lily do you have tweets to read to us i do i have some trimet tweets for us although I will say the transit Twitter world right now is all aflame with the BART strike. So yeah. it was difficult to dig through my transit tweets. Uh, um, so Dr. Jeff, who has started tweeting again a lot more about Trimet, it's making me very happy I miss his tweets, Yeah, says, You've got to be pretty drama-starved to watch a fair evasion bust from start to finish, like job-shadowing a mall cop. Life Kyle, with a U said, accidentally pulling the stop request cord and being way awkward to admit it. Haha, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Overheard on Trinet by Milkshake Motel. I just want to go home, get stoned, read The Economist. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> in, in response to a picture of the uh, Windows hardware wizard uh, startup app displaying on a uh, TVM machine. Tamakus Rome says, I have often wished TriMet would find a new hardware wizard because the old one should be fired. One last Dr. Jeff. I accidentally sat in the notice section, which doubles as the horrific, mind-boggling bio section and the got weed dude section. Hmm. And Dan which, Christensen... Wait, wait, which section is that, do you think? I... Probably mid-range on the bus. Okay. Uh, and our tweeting TriMet dust driver, Dan Christensen, overheard on my TriMet bus, that's not beer. You see, I had to pour out my water in this beer can and didn't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. uh, do you have an only on the bus story for us, Michael? Why, yes, I do, Lily. This one is from Sarah. It's from the number 15 bus. He sort of reminded me of one of those guys who tries to woo you with statistics. Like, I'll seduce you with my knowledge. I was at the bus stop on Belmont, across from the Vern, the dive bar, with two friends, both guys, I don't know who they were. We were waiting for the 15, and there was a little guy across the street, a really scrawny, raver kind of guy. He came over, zeroed in on me, and said, You are tall. You are taller than 80% of American women. The average height of women is five foot two. And I was like, okay. The bus stop is a funny place because you're totally stuck. Does this fear of the individual outweigh my annoyance for missing the bus? <laughs> he started talking about how much he likes tall girls. Then he asked, what is your favorite color? Pink, blue, or black? 
I was like, blue. He says, give me your hand. No, flip it over to the other side. So I flip it to the other side. And he reaches into his bag and he pulls out a bottle of blue nail polish. And he starts painting my fingernails. I'm like, where did the nail polish come from? Do you have other kinds of nail polish in there too? And he does. He was totally ready for a whole lot of different ladies. If I didn't have blue, there were many colors to choose from. I'm not Filipino or gay, he says. I just like to paint fingernails. So then he moves on to the next finger, and I can see the 15 coming up the street, and he moves on to finger three. I don't want to create an incident, but I also want to avoid all my fingers getting painted blue. (laughs) So the bus gets there, and I say, okay, we got to get on the bus, and I wave. I had that nail polish on there for like two weeks. It kept chipping off. True story from Sarah on the 15. Oh, that's beautiful and that's our show you can subscribe to the show at portlandafoot.org slash podcast and send us any comments you have at podcast at portlandafoot.org you can spread the word about the show by searching for portland afoot on itunes and leaving a review you can follow me at anomaly on twitter and you can follow at bike portland on twitter and on facebook too i'm jonathan Moz, bike portland's publisher i'm mike anderson bike portland's news editor and I'm Lillian Kerbake, your podcast producer. Thanks for listening, and remember to exit through the back, pass on the left, and don't forget to thank your bus driver. They've built an eight-lane motorway through my back garden. No one can explain how I came to be chosen. They've built an eight-lane motorway. They've ripped up all the trees. Now lorries zoom where once I grew me cabbages and peas.